I think that's, you know, it's, it's not a particularly comfortable house through large parts of both winter and, and summer, but it's extraordinary. And, you know, it makes me smile when I drive home and, and you know, walk into the house. I mean, I think it's better to talk about what's not here rather than what is here in a way. It's, um, there's a lot that's been unsaid about this place that needs to be kind of brought out. Hello and welcome to Two Point Perspective, a podcast about buildings told from different points of view. Buildings are some of our most valued creative products. They surround us, but also shelter and protect us. They profoundly shape our feelings, memories, well-being, and even our very sense of ourselves. In each episode, we'll speak to two people about their perspectives on a significant building, both how it was designed and made, and what it's like to live in. I'm Rebecca Horcroft, cultural historian, writer, and curator. And I'm architect Kieran McInerney. And this is Two Point Perspective, a podcast for Sydney Living Museums. Today we're going to a well-known Sydney house from the 1950s, but one very few people will have visited. It's The Glass House by Bill and Ruth Lucas. We're going to be meeting current residents Anthony Gill and Sarah McSpadden, and also Peter Lonergan, something of a Lucas expert and the somewhat reluctant custodian of the Bill Lucas archive. The house was designed in 1957 and pretty much hand-built by Bill and his brother Neville. It's perched on a steep side in what was already the architect's haven suburb of Castle Crag on Sydney's North Shore. It's a wild, steep bush suburb overlooking Middle Harbour. And the Glasshouse is a really deeply idealistic house where theories of how to live are explored in the most simple domestic form and materials. In many ways, this is a story of idealistic couples. First, Marion Marnie Griffin and Walter Burley Griffin, who established Castle Crag in the 1920s with an idea of landscape and community. And then Bill and Ruth, who come here with their own ideas of community. And now Anthony and Sarah, who've come to the house, which is not an easy one to live in, I'd say, partly for the Steiner School close by, and partly because, as designers, they're also interested in ways to live differently. Also, to some extent, Peter and Julie. Peter Lonergan, who with Julie Cracknell, has acquired the Bill Lucas archive so that this really interesting figure can be better understood. So the house, how would you describe it, Kieran? It's certainly an iconic house for Sydney architects, and it was the cover star of a recent book about Australian houses of the 50s and 60s. But not many people have had the chance to experience it in depth. Rebecca and I, like many other students and architecture fans, had only ever seen it from the street before. For architects, the name The Glass House is both full of meaning, but also not a very accurate description of this house. It brings to mind many iconic modernist houses. The ideal glass house was a typical modernist project. But this is not the shiny villa touching the manicured landscape lightly in front of a breathtaking view. This is kind of string and strut biplane technology barely clinging onto the side of a rocky slope and surrounded by a rainforest canopy. And also you need to remember the making of this suburb. The bulk of the streets of Castle Crag are named after features of castles. There's the Tor, the Battlement, the Citadel, the Bastion, and the address of this house is the Bulwark. The houses that Walter Billy Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin built here are also typically low-lying masonry 
buildings on level sites. And this house is the opposite. And Bill is both a fascinating and thwarted figure in Australian architecture. He was a technical teacher before the war, and in 44 his bomber crashed and burned, and he remained in hospital until 1946. He then studied architecture, but was never conventionally successful. He would work on projects and themes and then move on. The glass house was the Lucas family house and their life. Later on, his architectural practice was all pro bono or activism or teaching, and he lived off his war disability pension. It was an unconventional and difficult life, but very appealing and appropriate to today. It's quite lonely to be ahead of your time, but his passions then, living in nature, sustainability, social activism and conservation, all of these things are very current today. Despite being such an experimental and kind of anarchic house, it was very influential almost immediately. It was published in Architecture in Australia in 58 and featured in the 1961 exhibition 15 Houses by Sydney Architects. But probably it's best remembered as being included in Jennifer Taylor's book Houses for Sydney, which identified a style of architecture that has come to be called the Sydney School. Of course, they didn't call it that themselves, and everyone ever since has denied there was ever any such thing, but it's a pretty handy way to summarise this group who were using raw materials, exposed bricks, rough timber, and embracing the Australian bush as a domestic setting. The houses were a bit more brutalist in their simplicity and truth to materials. They're generally built on these kind of steep harbourside sites where the bush was retained rather than cleared. But the glass house is kind of different, isn't it? Yeah, well, this house has no brick, very little timber, and no opaque external walls. All the external walls facing the street and the trees are clear fixed glass or glass louvers, and there's really no distinction between the front and the back and the sides. They're all clear glass. All the walls facing the internal courtyard are also clear glass or obscure glass. And it's interesting, these different glass types. There's patterned glass with a green tinge and Georgian wide glass, which form a kind of patchwork as you look across the house, showing the different qualities of glass. Also, the house is in part six metres above the steep slope below. It's precarious and far from the bank manager's ideal of bricks and mortar. Interestingly, the house is listed on the State Heritage Register, which is the highest level of heritage protection before you move into national and world heritage listings, which is very unusual for modernist houses. It has sympathetic owners too, which has ensured it's in pretty remarkable condition considering it's really only had minor modifications. So let's have a look at the house. First, we're going to sit down with Anthony, who has now lived here for a year. So architects often have their favourite houses, and this is one of them. Why do you think that is? Look, I, I think the, the leanness and, and how fit the, the building is, is is part of that. I think that's, that's an appeal for, for, for an architect. There's something about architects' own houses where they're able to push things a, a little bit more than they typically can for for clients. So I think clearly this is a, a brave house. But I also feel, you know, I, that whole, you know, Laplace area and, and Stutchbury, there's, there's a real sort of romance to what they do as well in terms of the way, particularly Laplace area, the, the way he wants his clients to live, the way he lives, you know, there's a certain lack of comfort and luxury, which I think is you know, it's camping, right, kind of. Mm. So it's, it has this sort of romance, this idea that you're just in this shelter. You've got nothing more than you need to 
to sort of, you know, sustain yourself happily and, and comfortably enough without any of the, the sort of extras. So I, I think there's, there's certainly a bit of that, an obvious sort of type or goal to try and achieve as, a, as an architect practicing. You could create something like this that, that has the sort of impact that this sort of thing has. It's a, it's a very rare and extraordinary thing. Hmm. Well, that's interesting to mention Le Pastrier and Stutchbury because they are similar to this in terms of inside-outside minimal enclosure but what they do have is a lot of craft and when they don't have expensive materials they have you know a real richness of craftedness Mm. and that's something that people can hang on to but this is really is just made of standard elements that could have been bought at a hardware store and put together in a careful but probably not very skillful way Mm. so it's very different there's not much to hang on to here no I was wondering if you could compare it to another contemporary house of the time, but what do you think that might be internationally or or in Australia? Look, I I, I don't know exact exactly. Like in terms of it being sort of a a glass house and and dealing with privacy in in certain ways, there's maybe some some clear comparisons. It it sort of has a to me a, a slightly Japanese feel as well feels a little bit like a little Japanese house, you know. So I, I don't know a specific house that I'd, I'd compare it to, I don't think. Have you got any? Well, I think it is a bit like the Eames house or a Prouvé house in that it is made of cruder but still kind of industrial elements and that's it. But then Prouvé has decoration and the Eames house is also obviously on a very solid foundation on a flat bit of land. So I think they're the closest, but this is... They're, they're very well resolved, those buildings. Yeah. This is a bit more work it out as you go. Yeah. I mean, it's like a beach house too, but it's yeah, there's, there's not a lot like it. So when did you first see this house, Anthony, or experience it? I, I can't remember what year it was at university. It was either fifth or sixth year, and we would do these little tours of places like Castle Crag and I remember seeing this house and then as we we looked at the the plans for each of them you know it was this one that sort of resonated with me that was it was this little floor plan and also you know this sort of construction that I that I um was was sort of taken by so it was it's an, a favorite house of mine mm. for a long time so to you know get the opportunity to live here at this point, Anthony walked us around the house and we started in the living room. Shall we start, have a look out there and wander yeah. through? Well, I can feel a breeze coming through. I don't see any open windows, but the breeze is still coming through, which is nice. So, but this is, this is sort of the space where we, we do all our, our living. It's not really big enough for anything more than, than sort of a couple of chairs, uh, comfortable chairs and then the, the dining table and the kitchen, but we find ourselves you know, we spend all our time here, really. We've got a little TV room on the other side where the kids retreat to, but this is sort of everything for us. Yeah. And, and then you've, you know, this, this sort of donut that, that, that wraps around this courtyard in the middle. There's this corridor that sort of wraps around all the way through the whole building with a little um, bathroom and laundry off to the side. 
And then we've got sort of four bedrooms with no doors, which are like little cells down the other side. Mm. And then another bathroom, a much smaller bathroom on this side, because it's, it's just a little ensuite, and then a sort of storeroom or a, a dressing room. So it's, you know, in terms of the planning, obviously it, it's very lean, small house, but you, you get a lot of rooms and it, it works very hard. But, you, you know, even though this has a sliding door for privacy, there's sort of, you know, it's all open underneath. Yeah. The structure all runs through the little bath. You know, and although it's, you know, it's not exactly luxurious, it's, it's got a nice amount of room. It's yeah. got, you know, it's... It's generous. Yeah, and to have the laundry in here and, you know, it's a very... Um, in the plans it says baby bath. You've got a hand basin and a baby bath. So, so my understanding is that this deck out here wasn't original. You only had the garage and then the, the front deck, which took you to the front door. And then and the house was really just this structure that, that was then floating above the landscape with, without this deck. So just how cold is it having a shower here in winter, in the morning? It is alarmingly cold. I don't think I've ever been so cold in my whole life living here. <laughs> that, the, the most recent winter was not too bad. The winter before that was a real shock to us. And, you know, we'd get the fire going first thing in the morning and that would help a little bit. But, but it, it, equally, it's incredibly hot through summer. So you really only get, you know, I reckon about four good weeks a year in the shoulder seasons. It's almost like being in Europe then. <clears throat> yeah. Or England, having just four nice weeks of the year. Yeah. So it's extreme, but it's, it's, you know, it's sort of as invigorating as it is uncomfortable. Yeah. Should we go on the deck here or? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So this is a new deck. A new deck and, and it's been recently it's replaced as well. Good. This is probably the scariest part of the whole house where the, um, you know, the balustrade's starting to go. The balustrade's very low. Yeah. So I guess there's about 200 kilograms on here now, yes. roughly. I'm not too alarmed. And not really until you go downstairs do you appreciate just what it is to be standing in this spot here. Mm. So there's a creek that runs through here that really only runs after the rain. But you don't need much rain here. All the water comes down the hill and gets funneled into these little stormwater drains and then it forms this, this creek and it you know, it's seriously noisy. Sounds good. And runs for days. So it's kind of like a super budget falling water. Kind of, yeah, mm. yeah. Camping falling water. Yeah. There's a lot to see, but yeah. you're not overlooked. You can just see the road through there and there's a little car park on the verge. I do wonder, even though we go out walking at night, when the lights are on, you still don't really feel exposed in, in sort of any way. You do get, um, you know, every so often, I think maybe three or four times since we've been here, we've had um, architectural tour groups out the front and you're making yourself a cup of coffee and there's someone with a <laughs> mic'd up telling, you, telling everyone all about it. And you also get the odd knock on the door from architects who would like to, prominent architects who'd like to buy it. I mean, it's very delicate, but it do, everything seems to still work quite well. Like the windows, these big louvers are still working, the doors are working, but these tiny little glazing bars, amazing. It is, yeah. It, I mean, it couldn't be any leaner. Everything's um, incredibly thin. Yeah. 
but yeah, still functioning. I mean, it's amazing that the louvers can still function with it all being so bendy, you know? Well, that, that's what I, I sort of take heart in the fact, I, I, I presume if the structure starts to struggle, the, gra glass the glass will break, will break and then we, we have time to get out of the house. So we're still walking. So you go down three steps just to follow the roof really and it's the roof, yeah. And keep the ceiling height the same. Yeah. It's not for any other reason really. No. But I guess it separates the kids the original bedrooms area. Yeah. So. And it's you Entry know area. with no doors, it's um my daughter, fourteen year old daughter, would not describe it as her ideal house. Privacy is is a challenge. Mm. It's hard to keep your eight year old brother out. It's hard to slam a door when you've only got a curtain. Door slamming's important. But for the rest of us, we're kind of, um, kind of love it. I, I'm surprised how comfortable it does feel. You know, it doesn't feel as sort of stark as I would have thought. Mm. And there is, it does feel quite spacious, really. You've yeah. got a lot of, they're small rooms, but you've got a lot of rooms, yeah. you know, for different functions. So originally it was more flexible in the plan do you think it sort of lost something with that or? No, for us is that, you know, with two kids and like it actually works really well. We've realised that we, we don't need a lounge room. You know, this, this is fine for us, this room. And we've got now just enough rooms, these, these sort of strange rooms that are open. There's a bit of acoustic issues with trying to keep the kids asleep before up early and, and things like that. But there's a private side to the house and a public side to the house, you know, the planning's beautiful and very sophisticated and it functions very well I think yeah it certainly is very comfortable and the courtyard you that's you use it yeah we do not quite as much as you know in winter it, it really doesn't get any sense it's not like a little sun trap the most sun you'll probably get is just out on that little deck yeah or on where we've got our little day bed so and you do have to be a bit careful because if you leave the door open the house can be full of magpies it's lovely here. It's magic, isn't it? It, it? To me, it actually doesn't feel that different being inside to outside, which is probably why we don't use the deck all that much. Yeah, I can see that. It's mm. interesting. Well, if you're going to do this in any sort of city, this is a good one to do it in. Like, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be so good in Brisbane. It would be bad in Melbourne. Sydney's okay. Climate, just yeah. okay, yeah. Even Wollongong or Newcastle would be a bit... Painful. It's still pretty painful, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and how does it feel having lived here for a year? Like, I'm incredibly fond of this house, so I, I kind of like it more. I, I know the challenges. I, I, you know, it's sort of invigorating as it is uncomfortable. There's, there's sort of no excess anywhere. There's, there's something about that where well, clearly it's a very good design a good idea for, for what they were, what he wanted to do. And it has a, a charm to it that I, that I think is sort of very rare in, in houses. You must feel quite tiny in, in a big weather, like, you know, in a big weather event. Do you feel a bit endangered at times? Yeah, I mean, it, it does get a little bit, uh, a little bit scary in, in some of the big storms that we've had in the last last year. Although the house moves a lot, 
it actually, the wind isn't the thing that does it. Like the, the trees swaying outside in the wind are the, is what feels slightly scary. The house doesn't move at all. The house moves when the dryer's on or the dog is running down the, the hallway. But it's, it's not the wind that gets you. So it's... Mm. it's so it's well-sighted in that way? I think so, yeah. It's, it's certainly in this little valley. So it's not like you're on top of a ridge. I mean, it's, it's clearly a beautiful landscape that you're in. And the fact that the, the, sort of the house just floats over it and the landscape just disappears underneath it and carries through and pokes its head up again in the middle and, and then continues through, I think, is, is pretty extraordinary. Hmm. So I was in Jennifer Taylor's book, Houses for Sydney, 1953 to 63. She, she quotes Bill as saying, most buildings are not facilities to help us lead a better life but for protection against other people, security and status symbols. And this is the basic insecurity of Western civilization that ties us to our equipment. We should be orienting our equipment to the good things, not me- not using it as a means of defense. It's pretty firebrand sort of statement, especially about domestic architecture. Interestingly, in Castle Crag, what he was trying to do here I think he, he hoped would trigger something with with other houses and air, this area particularly that he would be able to create something, you know, some sort of community here, yeah. which he actually wasn't able to do. So I, I think he has sort of stripped away these things and he is living on the street and, and trying to connect with his neighbour and, ah. and nature and, and things. But but it hasn't caught on, you know, and he's sold up and moved to Paddington where he, he could find that sense of life on the street and things. So, yes, you know, I, I, I think he's also talking about sort of the, the you know, the averageness of Australian residential design and, and the attitude to people not, you know, turning their back on the street always and, and not, not connecting with your community. Mm. Have you seen that Neville Grisman quote that apparently he did in for um, Bill Lucas's obituary about the house? You know that it threw aside every precept of house design and construction, and it featured minimal cost, minimal structure, minimal energy use, and was beautiful. Do, do you think it's beautiful? I think it's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, I think it's one of the most beautiful houses. I, I, again, it's for me. You know it. The, the resolution of the details and things, because it's so straightforward and so direct, there's a real charm and, and beauty in that. But it's it's not it's not you know I, I don't feel like it's it's really designed. You know, it, you sort of have this this wonderful plan and this wonderful idea, and they know how they're going to get there, but they sort of work it out as as they go on what was clearly an incredibly tight budget. So I, I remember our first visit here. I remember being totally charmed by it, and you know it's modest, and and it's you know it doesn't. You could easily wander past and and not even see it. So I I, I think it's incredibly beautiful. The other sort of thing that really strikes you is how kind of fragile it is. What's the future for the house? Do you think like it? Uh, you know what repairs does it need, and is it in good shape? No, I wouldn't say it's in particularly good shape. Look, I, there's an owner now who is incredibly fond of this house, but my understanding is not a, in a position to do the work that, that's required to, to sort of um, bring it back. 
And that work has to happen relatively soon, I think, because it's starting to suffer in a few in a few spots. So it would really need to be slow and painstaking sort of restoration and, you know, live with the one-inch gaps between all the louvers and, and things and just slowly make your way around and, and redo everything. But it, 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 it will have to happen relatively soon, I, I think. A few decks have been replaced and I, I, the wiring was redone before we, we moved in, but they're relatively small things compared to what's, what's necessary. Peter Lonigan then joined us and we started by asking him about his first impressions of the house. Actually, I did a thesis on Belly Griffin in the, in the early 80s or late 70s. And so I saw it then and I kind of lined up, I, I, I lined up a meeting with Bill a couple of years later. I rang Bill up and Bill said, meet me at the Opera House and we'll go on the 10 o'clock tour. And so I turned up there in my early 20s. I wore my best singlet and cleaned my thongs. And um, Bill didn't turn up, <laughs> which was which was excellent. A couple, a couple of years later, oh, you know, maybe I don't know, three years later or something, we we Julie and I set up our our practice in a rag traders building in Surrey Hills, and no, I, I don't know, it would have been you know within a year of us. Um, starting, Bill turned up and just continued to turn up. So that was in the that was in probably you know 1985 or something like that. So not long after he stood me up at the opera house, he he made up for it and kind of kind of came daily. <laughs> Tell us about Bill and Ruth Lucas's careers at the time that they designed the house. Was it 1957? Yes. It was around then. So I suppose Bill and Ruth met at university and went through... I think Ruth may have been the year below Bill, but they basically completed university together in the early 50s. And Bill had started a practice with... had started a practice with his brother Neville and... A, an accountant called Bevan G. Uh, apparently, um, Bill visited Neville Grusman in his office on on the top floor of building in Hunter Street, and declared that Neville had too much space in his office, and they were moving in. So, Bill, his brother Neville, Ruth, and Tony Moore moved into Neville Grusman's office in Hunter Street in the in the city. Probably one of the first sort of major projects they worked on was the the Opera House competition, primarily Bill's design. And fairly shortly after they'd moved into Neville's office, David Allen, who was Bill's first employee, started started working in that in that studio space. So they were they were working as a you know a young architectural practice, sort of studio based practice doing competitions and kind of taking what work they could they could get but also Bill and Neville Lucas Bill's brother were building projects yeah. so so it was basically a building sort of a design and construct company if you like and Lucas Ruth's oldest 
daughter, I think, was born in 1957. So Ruth's Ruth's take on it all was from that point on, she was raising her family and had nothing to do with anything. But in the in the archive, there's there's reams of evidence of of Ruth's hand and her association with Marion Hall Best and ordering furniture and artist studio memorandum of fees and things like that. So do do we would you say Bill designed it or Ruth was involved or it was just Bill? Well, Ruth says it was just Bill. And I think you know it's I think it's probably not in a way it's not really it's not really designed in the kind of you know that sort of traditional sense of designing a house. Bill designed a building system and all of Bill's designs and his discussion about designs were around system design and not so much architectural practice. So he was designing systems for much bigger things and everything that he designed and built was a, pr- a prototype for um, some bigger, more universal project that he, that he had in mind. So Bill was, Bill was interesting because he was always futuring. You know, he was never kind of, he, he was never kind of stopped in the place where he was at. He was always sort of thinking outside and ahead of what he was, what was in front of him. So I'd say the house isn't designed, it just is. <laughs> so they they move quite quickly by 1962. Do you, how, what do you think about that? Is that sort of for practical reasons? They had quite a few children by then. Yeah. So they... by, by 62, they would have had at least three children, maybe another one on the way. So... Yeah, they didn't stay here for long, but but there was this very so you know thinking about thinking about the Lucases in 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 Castle Crag uh, is like thinking about a utopian in Arcadia. There was there it was a poor fit, where like I said, Bill had you know very big, very broad community style living aspirations. And it wasn't something that was kind of able to be affected in Castle Crag. Bill and Ruth did a lot of... They did a lot of work kind of uncovering Burley Griffin's pathways and I think they dug out the amphitheatre and did a huge amount of work in this community. And in the early 60s, Bill had a conversation with Owen Tooth who, who said that Paddington was the place to be. That's where there's a, you know, a real alternate arts artist based community growing in Sydney and then I mean Bill and Ruth then put all of their efforts into into Paddington as a as a model community and a kind of a future that a future mode of working that Bill wanted to wanted to take Bill also had a he, he also had a philosophical problem with the the amount of waste that architecture and building generated and saw conservation and adaptive reuse in the early 1960s as the as the perfect architectural fit. This was also a, I suppose, in many ways, uh, a European practice of kind of reconstruction. So after the after the war, there was a lot of concentration on 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 
reconstruction and reuse. And he saw Paddington almost almost like a like a a war torn European city. So he loved the 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 texture of the Victorian neighbourhood there and the the economy of buildings and style in Paddington and but but was more drawn to the community I think of Paddington as compared to the lack of community in Castle Craig. So talking about <clears throat> post post war times this building is of its time but it's also timeless it's a kind of stylless but it was designed in a time of post-war or just coming out of austerity where materials were becoming a little bit more available by an ex-serviceman and his wife and it was intended to be a model for war service homes. Do you think, was it ahead of its time or in sync with this time and how did the war affect Bill and the design of this house? Well, starting with the war, I can't imagine how the war would affect anybody and certainly in a good way but i think in in thinking about bill and bill's life the and he may have been like this anyway but he he bill certainly approached things in a kind of siege mentality there was there was a sort of an urgent response to problem solving that he maintained through his practice this is certainly not a war service home. The sort of war service homes that 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 we suffered in in Sydney are those places that kind of populate the the outer western suburbs of and even northern suburbs, I suppose, of of Sydney. Small, 120 square meter, maybe two or three bedroom houses on ridiculously large, cleared blocks of land. So it's not a war service home and it's certainly not a model that anybody then would have been interested in living in. Yes, you say it's stylish, but it's machine-made in many ways. And if, if, we think about, if we think about the intent of the intent of modernism rather than the style uh, that modernism became, this is a this is a exemplar of of the of the ambition and the intent of modern architecture and probably one of very few examples of something that was reactive rather than stylistic but there's something about it which is nature curing trauma connecting to nature as a way of you know, the way of the future, it's, it does have this futurist side of it. I guess I'll just read this quote from the, the Jennifer Taylor quotes in her book, Houses for Sydney, 1953 to 1963. She quotes Bill as saying, most buildings are not facilities to help us lead a better life, but for protection against other people, security and status symbols, and that is the basic insecurity of Western civilization that ties us to our equipment. We should be orienting our equipment to the good things, not using it as a means of defense. I mean, that's, you don't get Australian architects making firebrand radical statements like that. I haven't read anyone else 
saying that sort of thing. What what were his philosophical influences? Well, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to kind of guess what the philosophy was. There was this kind of fabulous and, and recognisable dissociation that I always got with Bill. And Julian, I knew Bill very, very well for probably 10 or 15 years and spent quite a lot of time with him. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was kind of hard to pin him down. But so philosophically... He was always critical of anything that had any recognisable style or or fashion. And I don't know whether that's a, a architectural philosophy, but, but really he certainly subscribed to the idea of architecture without architects, um, buildings without building, and space that was that was sort of contained but boundless at the same time. So, the, the, I mean, the, the quote in, in Jennifer Taylor's book, and, and it's incredibly articulate for Bill, not that Bill was inarticulate, but most of the stuff that you find about the glasshouse is that poem that he wrote that was sort of rubbish and not very... <laughs> he didn't seem to be able to say what needed to be said about this place, which you probably need good 60 years to let it settle and see how it compares with what's happened since or even what's happened before but it's unprecedented and therefore to kind of pin a philosophy on Bill is about as difficult as pinning a style on this house he was certainly influenced dramatically by Buckminster Fuller and that may have been a little bit after this so he through the university became involved in the Earth Repair Decade, which was Buckminster Fuller's mission to all architecture students in in universities around the world. And I think Bill and Cole James may have been the only two people that participated in it, but they certainly participated hard in it. And Bill had, I think, three hosted sort of three visits for. Buckminster Fuller and it changed the way he thought and it changed the way he spoke and it changed the way that he sort of functioned then globally. So yeah if you want to pin a philosophy on Bill, uh, Buckminster Fuller was it. I.e. the futurism, like how much does your building weigh and those sorts of things that Buckminster Fuller used to say. Yeah and and a a concern, a, a real lived concern for the environment mm. but but also the potential effect that a single person can have on uh, on a much much larger community mm. Walter Billy Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin were architects who planned Castle Crag and then lived and worked here they were responsible for the covenant that stated only brick and tile were to be used in the construction of the houses in Castle Crag. So then Bill and Ruth lived here, I guess, only 30 years later, I suppose, after the Griffins, and were involved in restoring the neglected open spaces and pathways that the Griffins had designed. But their building is built of glass, yet my understanding is they felt that they were building within the framework of what Walter and Marion wanted. 
Yeah, well, apparently, oh, Dave Allen mentions spending quite some time convincing the council that that this building was in the spirit of the brick and tile covenant. I don't know how they managed to do that, but my my kind of take on this house is it's like a it's like an inside out Burley Griffin house. So this is this is the ens- the essence of a a Burley Griffin Marimani house and in that sense it's probably more appropriate than any other building that that was built under the covenant but the covenant was stupid and I think it was probably more King O'Malley rather than the Mm. Burley Griffins who came up with the idea for the covenant hand in hand with with Willoughby Council at the time. Did they call it the glass house? Was that something that Bill Lucas attributed to it? Don't know. Couldn't say. Because there's a lot of baggage with that name and you've got Bruno Taut, you've got Philip Johnson's Glass House or the Farnsworth House or the Maison de Vere. But when you actually look at those houses, this one is is only glass. The walls are pretty much only glass. Mm. And those other ones have a lot of glass. This one is the most transparent. Yeah. I mean, I think Philip Johnson's glass house in the group of glass houses is pretty good, pretty essential mm. and experimental and built as an experiment. And and this, this house in that sense is the same. I mean, glass as a sort of a building material is, is relatively, at that stage in, in the late 50s, was uh, relatively new, mm. you know, and under underused. So... It's sort of astounding, really. Yeah, it's the most... I mean, it's the most direct and raw example of a house connected to nature, in Sydney at least. It's so raw that sometimes, you know, if you stand on the veranda over there, it's quite frightening. And I just wonder, once Bill had done it, did everyone else take one step backwards in the architecture community? Well, I blame the Opera House. Everybody gave up. When the, when the opera, all every architect in Sydney started driving tax, taxis. You know, they, everyone gave up. But we can't do any better than this. We might as well give up. So I think something happened in the '60s where architects stopped trying. It might have been the credit squeeze. It might have been a whole bunch of things. But it seemed like the enthusiasm and populating the country had just come to a kind of grinding halt. Everybody gave up. So I think possibly the impetus of this type of architecture, of late 50s, early 60s architecture, petered out a little bit. Harry certainly kept it going and was kind of criticised for that. But, yeah, it ran out of puff. Well, let's walk downstairs. I, we haven't walked down okay. below. Do you want to do that? Okay, we'll walk downstairs. Shall I I'll go in front of the talent? So if I fall down. Is it just you and me, Kieran? I think so. Uh, no, they'll follow us. Oh. I mean, that's. Is that the original chicken wire? Looks like it. Yeah. So we got this far. I think this is the way. Grab onto that tree. Yeah, so yeah. that's a that's a 125mm taper flange channel. Yeah. They don't hold anything up. No. 
That's for decoration. Have a look at the um, the bow in it. So oh, I've yes. got this um, I've got this butter paper drawing that that Bill did of all of these of all of these little tension members, all priced. So you know in pounds, shilling, and pence. Yes. And every bolt uh, and every nut all sort of costed out. So it's like a bill of quantities on a on a piece of butter paper. It's like a receipt from the hardware store. Yeah, and well, all, there are all the receipts from the hardware store as well. <laughs> so there's a bit of storage under here. Yeah. Ah. Okay, let's go. I'm too old to be under here, Karen. You've signed. You've signed the disclaimer. Yeah. I said what I was signing. Yeah. Well, yes, it is. It is a long way up, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. And you know, amazingly thin. Well, the base plates look pretty groovy, don't they? Yeah. There's a bit of a tension there. Yeah, and he and Bill had a really great long-term working relationship with with Miller, Milson, and Ferris on yep. on structure too. But I guess so. He's actually hanging. That's the thing. That's a, that's a compression. That's a strut, isn't it? Between the yeah that thing on an angle up the top there, that like fifty mil pipe. That's a strut between these two ties, it would seem. The th oh, yeah, the pipe. That looks like that might have been later, doesn't it? When the furniture started moving. And they've still got the... They're the they must be the original boards, the Stramat boards, right? Yeah. Because they're made of straw. So, yeah, so the first... Well, actually, not the first time I came here, but quite probably in the 90s, there was still the Stramat there were still the Stramat ceiling panels too. So Stramat on the, in the, in the ceiling, which is, you know, it's sort of badly water stained and a bit kind of falling apart. Well, that's almost far enough. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Where are you going? Don't go that way, go this way. Oh, I just want to get here. Yes, it's a big, big span. So I've also got a drawing, I've also got a butter paper drawing that, that just places all of these rocks um, on, the, on the site too. So a, a measured drawing of the rocks on the, <laughs> on the site. So uh, uh, with the, and with the trees sort of marked in between the rocks. So, but, I mean, Bill's concern for the site was, you know, was evident from the start. So all of, you know, the, the four columns are, are, are perched on the rocks and, and, you know, deliberately placed on the rocks. Mm. So I, I'd imagine that Bill had the, had the engineers here looking at the, the capacity of these rocks, which are floaters, basically, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, they're pretty big floaters, but they're floaters. Oh, kind of more sliders, you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that it's moved at all, which is good. The house is probably holding them in place to some degree. All right, I don't think anyone's coming to join us down here. No. Nah. That's Rebecca. She's gone. Good stuff. That's, I think we, that's time to adjourn. So that was the glass house. 
Great to experience it, but it possibly makes it harder to describe it once you've been there because it's all rather complex. Yeah, it was interesting to spend time in the house. It's not what I expected, really. Um, it's more comfortable, certainly, and it's actually less transparent than you'd expect. The most challenging thing about it seems to be that it is open to the street in a way that most houses would reverse the orientation and be open to the view behind. But it's kind of exciting too, in a, wow, maybe I could whip up a simple house on a weekend kind of way. It's idealistic and accessible architecture, really. What did you think? It does show us a simple way of living that's but very appealing and appropriate to today. Living in nature, sustainability, social activism and conservation, all of these things are very current today. I think it's really worth studying and discussing this frugal masterpiece more. Thank you and join us for another Two Point Perspective. Do, do you find it frightening now? I'm not finding it frightening now, but if I was here on a stormy night by myself and I hadn't been here before, yes, I would probably sleep in the carport, I think. <laughs>